Book Three, Chapter Five of *The Black Star Passes* by John Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Despite their utmost endeavor and the hard work of the industrial might of two worlds, it was nearly six weeks before the fleet had grown to a thing of importance. The test to which they subjected the tiny speedsters had been more than satisfactory. They behaved wonderfully, shooting about at terrific speed, with all the acceleration a pilot could stand. These speedsters were literally piloted projectiles and their amazing mobility made them a powerful arm of offense there came into being a special corp dubbed oddly enough rocket squad a group of men who could stand plenty of g's this rocket squad was composed solely of terrestrians for they were accustomed to the gravity of earth and could stand greater acceleration strains than could the venerians the pick of the air patrol formed the nucleus of this new military organization and in short order so great is the appeal of the new and novel the cream of the young men of the planet were competing for a place among the rocketeers each ship both speedster and mother craft was equipped with an invisibility locator a sensitive shortwave directional receiver that would permit the operator to direct his rays at invisible targets the ships themselves could not be made invisible since they depended in their very principle on the absorption of light energy if the walls of every part of the ship were perfectly transparent they could absorb no energy at all and they would still be plainly visible even more so than before they must remain visible but they could also force the enemy to remain visible each ten-man ship carried an old-fashioned cannon that was equipped to hurl canisters carrying the luminous paint they decided that these would have advantages even if the invaders did not use invisibility for in space a ship is visible only because it reflects or emits light for this reason the ships were not equipped with any portholes except in the pilot room and at the observation posts no light could escape to reduce the reflection to the absolute minimum the ships each had been painted with a ninety nine percent absorptive black in space they would be exceedingly difficult targets the heating effect of the sun on the black pigment when near the great star was rather disagreeably intense and to cool the speedsters they had installed a molecular director power unit which absorbed the heat and used the energy to drive the ship heaters offset the radiation loss of the black surface when too far from the sun each of the speedsters was equipped with a small machine gun shooting luminous paint bullets one of these landing on another craft made it visible for at least two hours and since they could cover an area of about thirty feet they were decidedly effective it was found that ray practice was rather complicated the government had ranges set up in great mountain districts away from any valuable property but they soon found that spatial war play could not be carried on on earth the rays very quickly demolished the targets and in a short time made good progress toward demolishing the mountains as well the problem was solved by using the barren surface of the moon and the asteroid belt beyond mars as a proving ground the ships were sent out in squadrons as fast as they could be finished and the men could be brought together and trained they were establishing a great shield of ships across all that section of the system whence the nigrans had appeared and they hoped to intercept the next attack before it reached earth for they were certain the next attack would be in full force. 
Arcot had gone to the conference held on Venus with the other men who had investigated the great wrecks, and each scientist had related his view of things and had offered suggestions. Arcot's idea of the Black Star was not very favorably received. As he later told Wade and Morey, who had not gone, there was good reason for their objection to his idea. Though the scientists were willing to admit that the invaders must have come from a great distance, and they agreed that they lived in an atmosphere of hydrogen, and judging from their pale skins, that they were not used to the rays of a sun, they still insisted on the theory of an outer planet of Sol. You remember, explained Arcot, several years ago there was a considerable discussion about the existence of a planet still further out from the sun than Pluto. It is well known that there are a number of irregularities in the orbits of Neptune and Pluto that can't be caused by known planets, and an outer planet could have the necessary mass and orbit to account for them. This attack from outer space was immediately taken as proof of that theory, and it was very easily supported, too. My one good point that stood for any length of time under their attacks was the fact that those ships weren't developed in a year or nor a century and that the chemical constitution of the men was so different. There were no new elements discovered except for the light matter, but they are rather wondering about the great difference of earthly chemical constitution and the constitution of those invaders. They had one argument that was just about enough to throw mine out, though they pointed out to the odds against the thing happening. You know, of course, how the planets are formed. They are results of tidal action on two passing suns. You can imagine two mighty stars careening through space, then drawing slowly nearer, till at last they come within a few billion miles of each other, and their gigantic masses reach out and bind them with a mighty chain of gravity. Their titanic masses swing about each other, trying to pull free, and continue its path about the center of the galactic system. But as their huge bulks come nearer, the chains that bind them become stronger and stronger and the tremendous pull of one gargantuan fireball on the other rises titanic tides of flame. Great streamers of gas shoot out, and all the space about is lighted by the flaming suns. The pull of gravity becomes more and more intense, as the one circles the other. The tide is pulled up, and the mighty ball of fire, which for all its existence has been practically motionless as far as rotation goes, begins to acquire a greater and greater rotational speed as the tidal drag urges it on. The flames begin to reach higher and higher, and the tides, now urged from the sun by centrifugal force, rise to an even greater crest, and as the swinging suns struggle to break loose, the flaming gas is pulled up, up, and becomes a mighty column of fire, a column that reaches out across three, four, a dozen million miles of space, and joins the two stars at last, as stalactites and stalagmites grow together. A flaming tie of matter joins them, two titanic suns, and a mighty rope of fire binds them, while far mightier chains of gravity hold them together. But now their original velocity reasserts itself, and having spiraled about each other for who can say how long, a year, a million years seems more probable, but still only an instant in the life of a star. And they begin to draw apart, and the flaming column is stretched out, and ever thinner it grows, and the two stars at last separate. But now the gas will never fall back into the sun. Like some giant flaming cigar, it reaches out into space, and will stay thus, 
for it has been set in rotation about the sun at such a speed as needed to form an orbit. The giant mass of gas is, however, too cool to continue to develop energy from matter, for it was only the surface of the sun and cool, and as it cools still further, there appear in it definite condensations, and the beginnings of planets are there. The great filament that stretched from sun to sun was cigar-shaped, and so the matter is more plentiful towards the center, and the larger planets develop. Thus Jupiter and Saturn are far larger than any of the others. The two ends are tapering, thus Earth is larger than Venus, which is larger than Mercury, and Uranus and Neptune are both smaller than Saturn. Pluto being smaller than either. Mars and the asteroids are hard to explain. Perhaps it's easier to understand when we remember the planets thus formed must necessarily have been rotating in eccentric orbits when they were first born, and these planets came too near the sun while gaseous, or nearly so, and Mars lost much of its matter while the other, which now exists only as the asteroids, broke up. But now that other flaming star has retired, wandering on through space. The star has left its traces, for behind it there are planets where none existed before. But remember, that too must have planets now. All this happened some two thousand million years ago. But in order that it might happen, it requires two stars pass within the relatively short distance of a few billion miles of each other. Space is not overcrowded with matter, you know. The density of the stars has been compared with twenty tennis balls roaming about eight thousand mile sphere that the Earth fills up. Twenty tennis ball in some two hundred and seventy billion cubic miles of space. Now imagine two of those tennis balls, with plenty of room to wander in, passing within a few yards of each other. The chances are about as good as the chances of two stars passing close enough to make planets. Now let's consider another possibility. The black star, as I told you, has planets. That means that it must have passed close to another star. Now we have it coming close to another sun that has been similarly affected. The chances of that happening are inconceivably small. There's one chance in billions that the planets will form. Two stars must pass close to each other when they have all the space to wander about in. Then those two afflicted stars separate, and one of them passes close by a new star which has thus been similarly afflicted with the one chance in billions. Well, that is, then a chance in billions of billions. So my theory was called impossible. I don't know but what it is. Besides, I thought of an argument the other men didn't throw at me. I'm surprised they didn't, too. The explanation of the strange chemical constitution of these men of a solar system planet would not be so impossible. It is quite possible that they live on a planet revolving about the sun which is nevertheless a planet of another star. It is quite conceivable to me that the chemical constitution of Neptune and Pluto will be found to be quite different from the rest of our planets. The two filaments drawn out from the suns may not have mingled, though I think they did. But it is quite conceivable that just before parting, our sun tore one planet, or even two or three, from the other star. And that would explain these strange beings. My other ideas were accepted. The agreed-on plan for the release of energy and the source of power. Arcot puffed on his pipe meditatively for several moments, then stood up and stretched. Oh, I wish they'd let me go on active duty with the space fleet. 
A scientific reputation can be an awful handicap at times, he grinned. He had been rejected very emphatically when he tried to enlist. The interplanetary governments had stated flatly that he was too important as a scientist to be risked as a pilot of a spaceship. On two other worlds, the great construction plans were humming with activity. Civilian production of all but the barest essentials had been put aside for the duration of the emergency. Spaceships were being turned out at top speed, getting their fuel from wrecks of the invaders' cruisers. Each ship needed only a small amount of light metal, for the energy content was tremendous, and those ships had been gigantic. Already there was a fleet of speedsters and mother ships out there in space, and with every passing hour others left the home planets, always adding to the fighting force that was to engage the attackers deep in space, where no stray ships might filter through to destroy the cities of Venus or Earth. The assembly lines were now turning out ships so rapidly that the training of their operators was the most serious problem. This difficulty had finally been overcome by a very abbreviated training course in the actual manipulation of the controls on the home planets, and subsequent training as the squadrons raced on their outward courses. It was soon decided that there must be another service beside that of ordinary ships. One planet was devoted to making huge interstellar liners. These giants made on Venus were nearly a quarter of a mile long, and though diminutive in comparison with the giant Nigran ships, they were still decidedly large. Twelve of these could be completed within the next month it was found, and one was immediately set aside as an officer's headquarters ship. It was recognized that the officers must be within a few hundred thousand miles of the actual engagements, for decisions would have to be made without too much loss of time in the transmission of reports. The ship must not be brought too near the front, lest the officers be endangered and the entire engagement lost for want of the organizing central headquarters. The final solution had been the huge central control ship. Other large vessels were to be used to carry food and supplies. They were not to enter the engagement, for their huge size would make them as vulnerable to the tiny darting mites of space as the Nigran ships had been to the interplanetary patrol. The little ships could not conveniently stock more than for a week of engagement, then drop back to these warehouses of space and go forward again for action. Throughout the long wait, the officers of the Solarian forces organized their forces to the limit of their ability, planning each move of their attack. Space had been marked off into a great three-dimensional map, and each ship carried a small replica, the planets moving as they did in their orbits. The space between the planets was divided off into definite points in a series of Cartesian coordinates, the Sun being the origin and the plane of the elliptic being the XY plane. The OX line was taken pointing toward one of the brightest of fixed stars that was in the plane of the elliptic. The entire solar system was thus marked off, as had been the planets long ages ago, into a system of three-dimensional latitude and longitude. This was imperative in order to assure the easy location of the point of first attack, and to permit the entire fleet to come into position there. A scattered guard was to remain free, to avoid any false attacks, and later attack from a point millions of miles distant. Earth and Venus were each equipped with gigantic ray projectors, mighty weapons that could destroy anything, even a body as large as the moon, at a distance of 10,000 miles. Still, 
a great ship might get through, and with the death ray, what a fearful toll might be expected from a vast city such as Chicago, with its thirty millions, or Karos, on Venus, with its fifteen and one-half millions. The tension became greater and greater with each passing day as the populace of two worlds waited the call from the far-flung guard. The main bulk of the fleet had been concentrated in the center of their great spherical shell of ships. They could only wait and watch and prepare, hundreds of miles apart, yet near enough so that no ship except perhaps a one-man craft could pass them undetected, and behind them were ships with delicate apparatus that could detect any foreign body of any size whatever within a hundred thousand miles of them. The solar system was prepared to repel borders from the vast sea of space. End of chapter 5 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com